wonder how many times the word gospel will be used around the world today. How many preachers, regardless of their religious affiliation, will use that word? How many Bible class teachers will use that word, gospel? It'll be used a lot, I can assure you. We've already talked about a gospel meeting at Big Spring that begins today. I'll be there tomorrow night, Tommy on Wednesday night. Hope you'll be there if you can to support those good brethren. Gospel. It is a word that is used a lot, but is it understood as fully as it needs to be? The answer to that is clearly no. The gospel. Specifically, the unchangeable gospel. That is what we are going to look at this morning. Very simple, straightforward lesson because the gospel itself is very simple and very straightforward. It is not complex. It is not a convoluted entity, though indeed based upon the religious division that characterizes our world today, one might conclude that the gospel must be very complex and convoluted because there are so many different doctrines and yet so many who still claim they are preaching and teaching and living the gospel. And we also live in a time where even those who have at one time understood and fully embraced the gospel, based upon seeing a lack of interest, seemingly an increasing lack of interest in the pure gospel, have begun to alter their approach to reaching people. But the gospel is unchangeable. And Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, the text at which we will look this morning reminds us very clearly, very, very emphatically, that the gospel is unchangeable. Paul there writes, I marvel. He's writing to the Galatian Christians who were being influenced or seduced to go back under Judaism. The law that had been nailed to the cross, the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, contrary to us, which was taken out of the way by the blood of Christ as he issued uh, his new covenant and instituted that new covenant, sealed by his own precious sinless blood. There were those who were telling these Gentile converts to Christianity, you need to keep the law of Moses. Well, tragically, we still have many who are confused about that and who would contend and do contend that the law of Moses is that which is to be kept and that the Sabbath day is to be kept as under that old law. You know, that reminds me that the Iron Man competition is going on today. There are people trapped in their homes, is my understanding, who can't even get out all day long because... The Iron Man competition is underway. As I was driving back in from North Carolina, I saw the signs from Little Debbie, I guess as the main or primary sponsor of Iron Man. Would Little Debbie have sponsored it if it were yesterday? I doubt it. I doubt it. Think about that. Oh, yes, there are plenty of people who still tragically hold to a law that has been nailed to the cross. 
because it was not possible that that law could take away sin, actually. It only pointed to the coming of the pure, sinless blood of Christ that could take away sin and cleanse those who lived faithfully under that old law and even before that law in the patriarchal dispensation. And that blood continues to cleanse those who will be obedient to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now we finish reading the text. I marvel, Paul writes, to those who were turning away in the process of being seduced to leave the truth. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ. God is the him here who called you in the grace of Christ, his only begotten son. I marvel that you're turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But then he adds, but if, even if we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. For emphasis, he says again, as we have said before, so now I say again, If anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. Well, whatever the gospel is, whatever the gospel is, it is abundantly clear from Paul's inspired message here that it cannot be altered. It must be preached, it must be lived, and it must be that way even if an angel from heaven if that were a possibility, and it's not, but if an angel from heaven could come and present to us some other gospel other than that which we have received, we should reject the word of the angel. That's how serious the matter is. But we have to ask, what is the gospel? It is a word, as I have said, that will be used thousands of times throughout our world today. And yet, in most of those places where it will be used, there's a misunderstanding and misapplication of what it is. Moreover, brethren, in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, Paul writes, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand. Here's its power by which you were saved. If you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And then he says, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. And here are the facts of the gospel. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Take just a brief side trip with me here from this text and see that the most prevalent doctrine in the denominational world today, is defeated by the last words of Paul's statement right here. That doctrine, which is so prevalent and so pervasive, is premillennialism. The idea of a rapture, the idea of a thousand-year reign of Christ on the literal throne of David in Jerusalem for a literal 1,000 years. All of that is associated with a doctrine that has as its premise this, Christ came to this earth initially to establish an earthly kingdom and to reign on a literal throne. But the Jews rejected him and crucified him, and he had not anticipated that rejection. He had not anticipated that crucifixion. And therefore, 
He was thwarted in his effort to establish that kingdom, so he established the church to last until such time as he will come again, and then he will establish that literal earthly kingdom. Now, there are many passages that defeat that false theory that is so prevalent. I dare say there are people in the denominational world today who don't even know that their denomination holds to that doctrine, and yet it is the case. How does this statement defeat that? Remember, the premise of premillennialism is that Christ was surprised by his rejection and by his crucifixion. He had not anticipated it. And so plan B had to be instituted, which was the church to last until the kingdom, the literal thousand-year reign, can be established. What does Paul say? I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins. Listen to this phrase. According to the what? According to the Scriptures. Christ died not by surprise. He died by design. He died in accordance with the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, hundreds of them relating to His betrayal, His persecution, His crucifixion. He died according to the Scriptures. And that He was buried. And that He rose again the third day. Here it is again according to the Scriptures. Also, do you remember how many times the Lord during His earthly ministry told His apostles what was coming? That He was going to Jerusalem, that He was going to be betrayed, that He was going to be crucified? How could the most prevalent doctrine in the denominational world be true in light of so many facts to the contrary? And this simply points out one of them. But back to what is the gospel? Well, it's the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That's the basis of the gospel. That, without, without that, there is no good news, because that's the meaning of the word gospel. Gospel means literally good news. How can there be any good news if Christ died according to the Scriptures and was buried according to the Scriptures, but did not rise again according to the Scriptures? That's bad news, not good news. But he did rise, according to the Scriptures. And that's the good news of the Gospel. Those are the facts. But one cannot obey facts. And so there, have to be, there has to be a command or commands involved in the Gospel. What is the Gospel? What does it involve? Does it simply involve my belief that Jesus died, that he was buried, and that he rose again according to the Scriptures? And that my expression of that belief in something like a sinner's prayer that is so widely advocated today will bring about my salvation. It is the gospel of salvation, no question about that. We'll talk more about that in a few moments. But what does the gospel involve? We get some tremendous insight into that as we look at some passages from the book of Acts. Acts chapter 8, verses 4 and 5, then verse 12, and then verse 25. As the Holy Spirit inspires Luke, the writer, to describe some very important, absolutely crucial aspects of the gospel, to tell us more about what the gospel involves, more than just the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That's the basis. Those are the facts. But notice, when the first major persecution arose against the Lord's church, after the death of Stephen, in Acts 8, verses 4 and 5, 
This is what he said about those who were under that major persecution at that time. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. So there's the expression preaching the word, the word of God, obviously. Then Philip, the next line says, went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. So those who were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached something else to them other than the word? No, just simply Christ is mentioned here. So what do we learn so far about the gospel as to what it is? We learn that to preach the gospel is to preach the word. And to preach the word is to preach Christ. Well, to this point, a great many people who misuse that word gospel would have no problem with us whatsoever at this point in time. They would say that's right. To preach the word is to preach Christ. And to preach Christ is to preach his death, burial, and resurrection. Well, yes, again, that's the basis of the gospel, yes. But the gospel has to entail far more than those simple facts, as we have said, as important, as absolutely essential as they are to the gospel message, his death, burial, and resurrection. So when we look at verse 12 of Acts chapter 8, we find these words. But when they believed Philip, who is down there doing what? He's down there preaching Christ to them, preaching the word to them. As they believed Philip, as he preached the things concerning, listen to it, the kingdom of God. Let's stop right there for a moment. Those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Philip went down to Samaria and preached Christ. In preaching Christ, he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God. There's no denying it. You couldn't deny it. And be honest with yourself at all, could you? But what is the kingdom of God? We've already said that the kingdom of God is not some future literal earthly reign of Christ on this earth. The kingdom of God is the church of Christ. Not a denomination among denominations. The kingdom of God is the kingdom of Christ, which is also called the church of Christ. Called the kingdom of heaven. If we go back to Matthew 16, 18 and 19, where Jesus promised to build his church, here's how he put it. After Peter had made that wonderful confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus responded, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed it to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you, you are Peter, a stone. And on this rock, a large bedrock, not Peter the rock, but a large bedrock. What large bedrock? The great foundational truth, Peter, that you've just confessed that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. Upon that great truth, I will build my church. There it is, church. And I will give to you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of God, Philip preached. Kingdom of heaven, same thing. Church of Christ, same thing. Jesus used the terms kingdom and church in Matthew 16 and 18 and 19 clearly in an interchangeable, synonymous way. Not as two separate institutions, one that's a parenthesis now and temporary until he can come again and establish a literal kingdom. No, he'll never come again to establish a literal kingdom. He'll come again to take the kingdom that he has established home to the Father. 1 Corinthians 15, 24. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. When he puts an end 
to all rule, authority, and power. He's ruling now. He'll put an end to his rule when he delivers the kingdom, the church, to the Father in heaven, 1 Corinthians 15, 24. That's in complete harmony with what Jesus promised to Peter and the other apostles when he said, upon this rock I'll build my church, I'll give to you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. When were those keys used? On the first Pentecost day following his resurrection and ascension and the gospel was preached. The keys were used to open the door to the kingdom as it were and some 3,000 souls obeyed the gospel on that day and were added to the church, added to the kingdom. One in the same institution. When Philip went down to preach Christ to the Samaritans, verse 12 says he preached the kingdom of God. Therefore, you cannot preach the gospel without preaching the church because the church is at the heart of the gospel. Acts 20, verse 28 says the church of Christ was purchased with his Blood. Remember what Paul told those elders on that occasion? He said, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you shepherds or overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. How can something be an accident, plan B, that was purchased with the blood of Christ? And that church is the kingdom. Therefore, we should not be surprised that when Philip preached the gospel, when he preached Christ, he preached the kingdom of God. Because all those who obey the gospel are added to the kingdom. And outside of that kingdom, there is no salvation. Outside of that pre-denominational, not denominational or non-denominational really, more specifically the pre-denominational church we read about in the New Testament is that kingdom or church to which all those who obey the gospel are added by the Lord. Therefore, Philip preached the things concerning the kingdom of God. He talked about the church. But something else the verse says, and the name of Jesus Christ. What does he mean, the name of Jesus Christ, when Luke records that? We've used the illustration so many times, the old expression, stop in the name of the law. When an officer commands stop in the name of the law, he is saying stop by the authority invested in me as an officer of the law. When Philip preached the name of Christ, he preached Christ's authority in all things. He preached that we must have a thus saith the Lord for all that we do in our religious practice and in our religious lives. Colossians 3.17, Paul wrote, Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord. It's a great old song. Do all in the name of the Lord. Not by man's decree, but as God decreed. The refrain of that song says, Do all in the name of the Lord. That is, do it by His authority. Therefore, everything I do in word or deed must be done by the authority of the Lord. Where do I find that authority? In the New Testament. If I cannot find it here, it does not matter if the whole world rejects what's here. I dare not change it to try to make it more appealing. I cannot. I must preach it and teach it and live it compassionately, but I cannot compromise it. I must do all that I do in the name of the Lord. And then the last statement, the last part of that 
verse, verse 12 says, both men and women were baptized. Now think about that. Philip went down to the city of Samaria, verse 4, or verse 5, and preached Christ to them. To preach Christ was to preach the Word, but to preach the Word and to preach Christ involved preaching what? The church, the kingdom of God. It involved preaching the authority of Christ, meaning in everything that we do we have to have that authority, and it had to involve the preaching of baptism. Because men and women would not have been baptized if they had not heard that in the preaching of Philip who preached Christ. So you can't preach Christ without preaching baptism. You can't do it. And yet, for the most part, the religious world says, oh, yes, you can. And they've been doing it and continue to do it to this very moment in time. The vast majority. And yet the word is not complicated. The word is clear. But is this the gospel? Is the gospel to preach the word, to preach Christ, and that involves the kingdom, the church, and the authority of Christ, and baptism? Is all of that really the gospel? Well, look at verse 25. This is all in the same context. Verse 25 of Acts 8 says, So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, there's the word again, they returned to Jerusalem preaching what? Preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. When it came back to the many villages of the Samaritans that they preached the gospel, and is that something different than baptism and the authority of Christ and the church of Christ and the word of God and Christ? It's all a part of the gospel, isn't it? It's all a part of the gospel. You don't separate the church from the gospel. You don't separate baptism from the gospel. You don't separate the authority of Christ in how we worship and the acts of worship in which we're involved. You don't, you don't separate Christ from the organization of the church. Every aspect of the Lord's church is clearly defined here. And therefore, to preach the gospel involves all of that. And so when we think about the gospel and what Paul reminds us about it in our passage primary in Galatians, we think, first of all, it's powerful. I don't care if this whole community, this whole city, this whole state, this whole nation, this whole world, to a man, to a woman, rejects it. It hasn't lost one bit of its power. It is still God's power to save. He has no other. Romans 1.16 Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God. Yes, that's the word from which we get our word dynamite. It is God's dynamite. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Every man living must submit to the power of the gospel and recognize its power and answer the call of the gospel, 2 Thessalonians 2.14. Whereunto, he wrote to the Thessalonians, he called you through our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're going to be called to salvation... It's not going to be by anything except the pure, unadulterated gospel 
of Christ. And that reminds us that the gospel is pertinent. It is the gospel of our salvation. Paul reminded the Ephesians in Ephesians 1.13, In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your what? The gospel of your salvation. The gospel is the gospel of your salvation. No question about it. If we want to be saved, it can't be through any of the world religions. It can't be through the denominational concept of Christianity. It must be through the pure gospel of Christ, which is pertinent because it is the gospel of our salvation. And as we have already alluded to, it is peculiar. Go back with me to Galatians 1, 7 through 9 which is not another, not another gospel. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. Again, listen to it. But even if we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than what we have received, let him be accursed. As you have said, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. The gospel we have preached to you, the gospel you have received, that gospel is the only gospel. It is peculiar. It is singular. It is truly unchangeable. Therefore, it is perpetual. Peter, by inspiration, reminds us of that so beautifully in 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 22 writing to Christians who had been purified by the gospel and their obedience to it. He writes, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, how, Peter? Through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. The word of God. Then he goes on, Because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. What is that word, Peter? Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. The gospel. But how does one obey the unchangeable gospel? How does one obey this powerful, pertinent, peculiar perpetual gospel that will never change as long as time stands. How does one do it? Well, he must believe. John eight twenty four. Unless you believe that I am he, Jesus said, you will die in your sins. No question that belief is essential. But the same Lord said, repent. I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Luke 13, 3 and verse 5. How can faith only save when Jesus says you must believe, but unless you repent, you'll perish eternally? Therefore, it has to be belief at least coupled with repentance, but it's beyond that. One must sweeten his lips with the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Matthew 10, 32. Whoever confesses me before men, him will I confess before the Father in heaven. He goes on to say in verse 33, whoever denies me, him I will deny before the Father in heaven. And yes, 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 just as Philip preached baptism when he preached the gospel, we must preach it and it is a part of the plan by which God saves us. Jesus put it so clearly when he said, He who believes and is baptized 
will be saved. And so when we have believed and repented and confessed and been baptized, we rise to walk in newness of life, cleansed in the watery grave of baptism, not by the water but by the blood that is applied there, and we rise to walk in newness of life added to the church, the kingdom of God in which we must be faithful even unto death. Revelation 2 and verse 10. The latter part of that verse says, Be faithful until death, and I'll give you the crown of life. Is it complicated, convoluted, complex, this gospel about which we've spoken this morning? No, it's not. And why would we be surprised that it's not? Because in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 4, Paul says, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. If God's desire, God's dream is, if you will, that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, would he not make the gospel, the good news of salvation, clear enough to be understood? It's man who has confused it. It is man who has complicated it. It is man who has substituted his teaching for the teaching of the New Testament. We must make sure that we adhere to the unchangeable gospel. Have you obeyed it? If not, we plead with you to do so this morning. If you have but need to come home to your first love as one who's wandered from it, we plead with you to do that as we stand to sing to encourage you.